0: Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. How are we? Good morning. Good morning. Good? It's uh, funny living in Portland because nice weather this time of year means cloudy, 60s with no rain, and you know that means there's going to be a smaller attendance. So uh, we kind of see that on display a little bit this morning, half-joking. Um, but actually, I read this morning in my devotional book by Paul Tripp. If you've ever read New Morning Mercies, any of you own that that book, I should buy it for everyone. It's great. It's one page, so if you feel overwhelmed with work or with parenting or any of those things, it's, it's great reminders of the gospel day in and day out. And uh, I was reminded this morning that we gather as a church because we need the reminder of the gospel week in and week out. Because I don't know how your week has been for those of you who are here, or those online, but it's likely you've forgotten at some point. It's likely you've gotten in the weeds of life where you're feeling like a sojourner, and you've forgotten. So that's part of why we gather as a church. Because we, I need the reminder. You need the reminder. We need the reminder. Uh, this spring, we've been studying through the book of First Peter a very applicable book for our time and culture. And this morning we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11 in a few minutes. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your copy of Scripture or turn the app on your phone to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be in verse 11 and 12 today. Now up until this point, Peter is focused on our salvation in Christ and how it is that we as the people of God, he calls us living stones, the new temple of God, how it is that we relate to God and one another. But this week, uh, Peter's going to take a shift, and he starts to focus less on how it is relate to one another, but now how it is that we, as God's people, relate to the world around us, and how it is that we are to engage in a place that is growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. In the 1950s, there was this fringe cult religious group called the Seekers, and they made the papers and kind of got their name by predicting that the, the flood was going to come and destroy the entire West Coast. Now, some of you grew up on the West Coast, and so maybe you've heard about this story. I remember even growing up on the East Coast, there was always stories like, California's going to drop off into the ocean at some point. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but it is still a very beautiful state. But this group was led by this eccentric lady named Dorothy Martin. And supposedly, she, had, she what she believed is that these superior beings from the planet Clarion were communicating to her. She believed this with all of her heart. And they told her they'd been monitoring Earth and that they would arrive one day and they were going to rescue the Seekers before this cataclysm event took place and it destroyed the West Coast with a flood. And so the Seekers, they believed in this so much, they abandoned their jobs, they got rid of all their possessions, they left their spouses and their families to wait for this flying saucer to come and rescue them. But neither the aliens nor the apocalypse ever arrived. After several uncomfortable hours on the appointed day, I've always imagined, like, what are those people thinking when they're together on that day, the hour, and going, like, okay, it's going to happen any minute, you know, they saw a shooting star. and they think, there it is, it's about to take place. But after several uncomfortable hours, so Martin supposedly received a message saying that they had spread so much light that God had saved the world from destruction. Now, I share this bizarre story because over the years, there have been a lot of cult and religious groups who have kind of predicted the end of the world, but I mention that in part because they've also thought, how do we live in this world? And how do, we, how do we live in this world and be separate from the world? And so many of them decide to silo themselves off from the world. We're going to build fences, and we're going to live very different lives, and we're going to kind of silo ourselves over in this corner until the end of time. But apprentices to the way of Jesus... That would be those of us following Christ. Disciples would be another term we would use. How we are to live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity is not a hypothetical, but it's a reality. How do we faithfully live and follow the God of the Bible in a place where it's becoming harder and harder to do so? Typically, we find two responses on how it is we are to engage with a world around us when it is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And maybe you fall into one of these two camps, or maybe you've observed one of these two camps. The first response is you abandon culture. The response goes something like this. Why suffer as part of society rather than just disengage ourselves from society? I mean, after all, it's easier just to abandon culture and remove ourselves from it as much as possible. And so uh, this is where... I think there's some good intent behind these things, but this is where uh, Christian got slapped on in front of a lot of things for a label, you know, Christian bookstore, Christian music, and the, like mints. It got down to these testaments, right? Like these mints that you put in your mouth are gonna be somehow be better than the one Trident that you buy at the grocery store when you're checking out, and you know, and it got on ridiculous. And it was always like the Christian version of this thing. I remember listening to punk rock music and hardcore music, and Ben can say amen because he listens to these <laughs> bands too. And it was always like. Oh, you, you shouldn't listen to this band, but you can listen to this band because they sound really similar, but they're just singing about Jesus versus something else in culture and society. So we did some of these things. A second response is you change culture. And there's a positive form of this, but i think in the most negative sense. Like we are going to change culture. So the thinking often goes, if we can get the right politicians in office, we are in a primary, I'm going to recommend go vote. That's one of the most political statements I'll make today. Then we can turn our country back into a Christian nation. We have to get those right individuals in office. Once again, I think there's some good intent there, but I think we've also seen the abuse of that there. People who don't follow Jesus at all, who maybe have similar morals, and they're they're moralistic, we think, man, that will help change us into this Christian nation. Or perhaps if we can indoctrinate our children well enough and educate them well enough, we can help shape the future generations of leaders. And so while some Christians say we're going to abandon culture altogether and some say, no, we're going to engage and we're going to change culture through activism and not to see it in heaven, in Portland as it is in heaven, but to actually see heaven. so some will think like this is heaven and that it will become that through this change. I think both approaches can actually be kind of naive. They can also be misguided if they go unchecked. It can leave one as a very irrelevant witness. Those people are so disengaged from the culture that they don't know anything that's happening in the culture. And the other simply accommodates prevailing culture and its norms. But this question of how we relate to the culture around us, it's not a hypothetical. It's not a debate that we say, how do you do that? It's a reality that's in front of us. So it's the practical question of how it is that you and I live as sojourners in a foreign land. And for us, this foreign land is called Portland. So instead of these two extremes, I'm going to advocate for a third option, which is engage culture in light of scripture. Engage culture through the sometimes i talk about this, like engage culture through the lens of scripture, through the lens of the gospel. And so we disentangle ideas that Christians can and must affirm. There are things in Scripture that say we, we have to affirm these as orthodox, biblical believing Christians. But then there's some other ideas that we cannot and we must not embrace of the culture around us and be able to discern those areas. And so today, what Peter's going to do, he's going to explain as God's beloved children how we are to engage the culture around us. And so if you're taking notes, our first point this morning is as God's beloved children, we are called to live distinct lives. Look at verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he starts by calling us Beloved. Maybe spend some time one day studying that word and what that means. But what he's doing is he's reminding us on the front end that as we step out into the world that we're not stepping out alone, that we are deeply loved by God. Now, to know that you're deeply loved by God, it should be an encouragement to you, but it should also reshape how we relate to the world around us. This reminds us that if you've been tracking with us for the last, I guess, two months now, that we are set apart by God for God, which includes abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So how do we live distinct lives? Is it totally disengaging from culture altogether and putting up fences? Is it trying to get the right people in office to persuade and change culture? He says we live distinct lives by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Now, the bodies that we live in, and hopefully everyone can I can get an amen or at least a nod, like we still struggle with sinful desires, do we not? Right, amen? Like we all still struggle with sinful desires, think I'm not alone in that. And Peter calls us, though, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, abstain from these sinful desires. Easier said than done, Peter. So how do we do that? One is we keep an eye on them, and we try our best to keep them at a distance. A friend of mine said it this way. As long as we are in this world, then we need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. Sin is not your friend. But here's why I believe most of us are. I believe that most of us are in this place where sin is a reality that we're so used to that we don't consider it dangerous. We've become so comfortable with sin because it's all around us that it's almost, eh, this is just how it is, right? And so we've become comfortable with sin. And if we're honest, I'm the only one speaking at the moment, so once again I can get nods, if we're honest... Sin looks fun. And it's full of momentary pleasure. I mean, how bad and harmful can it really be? I mean, nobody else is around. Nobody else has to know about this. Just don't get caught on video because then it'll be all over social media. But what does Peter say about sin here? He says, it wages war against your soul. That doesn't sound like something comfortable to play with. You may have heard the story of the lady and the pet python. This lady loved her python dearly. Those animal lovers in the room, you can, you can resonate with She loved her python dearly. Now, I have a fear of any kind of snake, so this would not be my story. But she loved this python so much that she allowed the snake onto her bed at night, provide the warmth for it. She'd sleep on her belly, and the snake would slither on top of her Often stretching itself from her head to her toes. Go ahead and kill me now. <laughs> One day she noticed, though, that the python had stopped eating. Now, if you've got an animal and you notice it stops eating, you get concerned. What's wrong with my pet? With my furry little friend, or slimy little friend in this case? So she took the snake to the veterinarian. And the vet asked her some questions about the python's daily activities. What is the python doing? And well, she said, well, the python sleeps with me at night in my bed. And the veterinarian became quite concerned. He asked her if the snake ever wrapped itself around her and if it ever stretched out along her entire body from head to toe. She said, yes, it does this every night. That's exactly the sort of thing that my snake is doing. And the the color drains from the vet's face. And he explained, your python is not snuggling with you. Your python is measuring you because your snake has stopped eating because it now has plans for the greatest feast of its life and its you." Now, I don't know if this story is actually true or not. The debate's out on the internet, but it's told as it's a true story. That the python was starving itself to eat her. Sin in our lives, what Peter calls the passions of the flesh, they often look so appealing and friendly. They often look like our best friend. Man, this is going to comfort me. This is going to give me the pleasure in life that I've been seeking. This is what I can't find in my spouse or my family or my friends. I can't get this anywhere else that we don't realize that sin's intention, like the python, is not to play nice with us. But sin's intention is actually to kill us. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So since sin intends to kill us, Peter wants us to know and be aware of what these sins are. And here's the reality. they look a little different for each of us, but there's some there's some common themes. We each have areas that we are weaker in. For some of us, it might be some type of pleasure. That's, that's the, the area that rages war on our soul. For some of us, it's some type of self-reliance, that I can do this life. I don't need God's help. I don't need others' help. For some of us, it's some type of covetedness. And I wish I had what they had. The car, the house, the bigger church. For some of us, is that some type of idolatry? I can only have that thing. Or if I lose that thing. Remember that cornerstone we talked about a few weeks ago. The point is, we all have areas of sin struggle. And I'm glad we're all on the same page, right? We're all in the same boat this morning. And most of us, we're weakest when we're tired, when we're stressed, when we're burnt out, overworked, maybe just bored. Right? And so I think what Peter's doing is saying, I want you to be self-aware enough this morning to recognize that you still have sin struggles, know what those are, because how in the world can you abstain from something if you're not knowing what it is? This is where maybe we can name it and claim it. Not as the gospel message, but name and claim what the area of the weakness in your life. So that when it that creeps up in your life, you'll be aware in order to abstain from the passion of the flesh. And how do you do that? You do it through the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And so first, we're called to live distinct lives. Which brings you to my second point. As God's beloved children, we are to keep our conduct honorable. There's a couple different slides, some of the verses on there as well. There you go. As God's beloved children, we are to keep our conduct honorable. Pick up verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter just told us how we are to act and how we are to respond as we live in a world that hates us and is growing increasingly hostile to our faith in Jesus Christ. He says, keep your conduct honorable among evildoers. So we're to live in such a way, an honorable way, that when accusations come our way, they're shown to be false. We're going to unpack that a little bit, but basically accusations will come your way, but live in such a way that you are living an honorable life. 1 Peter 4, 3-4 through tells us this. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, I remember not that long ago in the U.S., if we're honest, it was relatively easy to be a Christian. At least a cultural Christian, which I don't necessarily believe is a Christian, but it was relatively easy. I mean, I can still remember when I was a teenager, like the WWJD bracelets. Like, that was a fad. and mean, like everybody was wearing them, right? And so it was relatively easy. There was like a point in time where it was almost like trendy and cool to be a Christian, as odd as that sounds, especially where I grew up, but that is quickly changing and cities like ours is, is leading that change and leading that charge. Growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, people who believed the Bible was the inerrant word of God were still respected for living their lives that way. They still had a respect, even if people didn't agree with that and didn't follow the Bible, there was still kind of a, okay, that's a, that's a choice that you make and, and, and you're still respected. Yes, evolution was being taught in schools, but creation was still just as much of a legitimate option when it came to basically how we got here. One's gender would have never been separated from biology. All of these things are changing now. This is increasingly no longer the case. In our world today, if you hold to the traditional, biblical, orthodox beliefs when it comes to areas like gender, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage you are at best going to have evil spoken against you. But oftentimes, Christians are being sued, they're being canceled, are losing their jobs, for holding these same views and beliefs today. You know, we live in a city, and I want to say this carefully, because we welcome all people, to love all people, to point all people to Jesus. But we live in a city that, that boasts equality and inclusion, but in my experience, it's often at the expense or an up until it involves Christ followers. Until it... It's our biblical orthodox beliefs. At which point, it's actually not included. I think what Peter's pointing to is that we're going to be sojourners in the world we have found ourselves. It was socially acceptable at one point in our country, not long ago, if you made the statement, Christ is the only way to God, that it was socially acceptable. Maybe not agreed with who you're conversing with, but it was socially acceptable. But now when you make that statement, you're likely to be called exclusive Hateful, prejudiced, bigoted, (laughs) extremist. But now you are looked at as hateful. How can Jesus be the only way to God? How can this be the only way to God? There's all these other options, all these other religions. And so church, I believe that we are the first generation in the history of our country that this verse is not going to be theory for us. We are going to be forced to live this out. It's becoming increasingly harder, increasingly challenging, more challenging to live this out. But we must live it out honorably. There's a wrong way and a right way to live this out, which brings me to my third and final point this morning. As God's beloved children, we are called to live holy. Let me reread verse 12 for us again. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable." So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. My friend Matt Carter, he makes three distinct points that we see from Peter in this one verse on how we relate to the world. First, our holiness will be confrontational to a lost world. Second, our holiness should be visible to a lost world. And third, our holiness will be evangelistic to a lost world. I'm going to break those down real briefly, and then we'll wrap up. So first, our holiness will be confrontational to a lost world. It says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Notice that Peter doesn't say if they speak against you. Peter says when they speak against you, meaning it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time if you haven't already experienced it. And Jesus told us in Matthew 10, He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I know this may not be the most encouraging message, but it says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's my question. Why will they hate us? There's a lot of passages we could turn to. I'm just going to look at one, John 3, 19. Because they love the darkness and their sin. But here's what I think we need to hear this morning. So don't let me lose you. We need to stop being surprised when we are hated by the world. Because I find myself going like, why well, how come I'm not accepted in this circle? How come this and how come this? Church, Jesus promised us this. He wasn't joking. I do think Jesus told jokes. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. But he wasn't joking on this point. Jesus said, look, guys, they hate me. They will also hate you. And so it can't be about living our best life now. I mean, I think that's the whole point that Peter's making in this passage. Like, we're living for another life, for a future inheritance. Because if they hated Jesus, they will hate us. Church, we need to stop taking it so personally. It's hard to realize that, man, I will will be disliked. Right? We all want to be liked. We never really graduate beyond middle school, is my theory. We just get older. We just get put in taller and wider bodies. (laughs) But we, st- we all want to be liked, right? We all want to have friends. None of us want to feel alone. So it's hard going, man, this, if I take this like seriously, I can't take it personally, though, that the world will not like us. John 15, 18 through 19 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Did you catch that? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. First Peter 4, 12-14, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Living out a biblical Christian ethic will be harder and harder, and we will be hated by many for those ethics, for the way that we live. But as hard as it becomes, it shouldn't surprise us. If anything, when this happens, you know what we actually should do? It should be like a really weird form of encouragement. You ever met someone, and they're going through the same struggle you're going through? And you're like, Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Not that you're like, I'm so glad you're going through this. But you're like, oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, you struggle with parenting as well? Okay, good, I'm not the only one. Oh, you have marriage issues too? Good, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Got to keep it all together. But this in some weird way should encourage us. Christ told us this would happen. If it never happens, then we might question how we're actually living. Are we living in the world and looking too much like the world? Are we living in the world but not of the world? Second is our holiness should be visible to a lost world. He says that you may see your good deeds. In short, if you are saved, people should be able to see a difference in your life. They should be able to recognize, even if they hate you, that there is a difference about you. You can say you're a Christian all day long, but if you're not actually a Christian, it will become evident to the people around you. Your spouse will be able and should be able to tell the difference. Your children should be able to tell a difference. Your coworkers will be able to tell a difference. Your neighbors will be able to tell a difference. Your friends will be able to tell a difference. They may not like you in certain areas. They may not accept you in certain areas. They may even hate you in certain areas. But they should be able to tell a difference. And so, if you are saved, then the lost around you will see the difference in how you respond, how you engage, how you interact. And Peter says, make sure you keep your conduct honorable i mean wouldn't you want that to be said about you if, if people don't like you and they have this sort of thing because your ethics and your convictions but they say but oh, honorable she's honorable there's something to be said about being honorable and so peter's point slander is coming but your life should always contradict the slander your life should always contradict the accusations that they throw and we have no reason to slander back that's the flesh side of us Right? somebody comes against you for something or they come towards you and you feel like they're throwing hate at you and our response is I'm going to throw it back to you, don't you mess with me right, I'll get fired and my blood gets boiling and I'm just like sit down don't do that you know I'm like okay, okay but that's our natural fleshly response but we have no reason to slander back and so I believe there's ever a time to commit to this and living this way, that is now, I want to be said of sojourn and sojourners that we are living an honorable life We don't agree with things that that church maybe talks about. We don't agree with maybe the church, how they teach, and this and this and this. But that's an honorable church. That's what we want to be said of us. And I believe that Christians in many reasons are being slandered for the right reasons. And so we stand against, right now, this is a hot topic, I know. We stand against abortion, but we are pro-life for all of life. I mean, even when it was mentioned briefly in the prayer, the shooting in Buffalo, and I don't have all the, the, the details, but... Right? That's horrendous, that's horrific, because lives were lost. We believe in the safety of life, we support Christ's pregnancy center, we welcome single mothers, we help families in financial need, we advocate for adoption and foster care. And the reason I say that is that's often the critic- critics on the other side of the aisle, saying no, but they don't do all these things. Like, no, we believe in all of life. We're pro-life for all of it. We stand for the biblical definition of sexual ethics, and we're unapologetic about that stand, but we stand for them in a loving way. We don't have to stand for them as jerks. We don't have to stand for them in a, there's almost like this cocky arrogance that can come up out of certain uh, traditions with, within the, the Christian realm. And sometimes I'm part of some of those groups and I'm like, I don't even want to go to the lunches that they're doing because they come across like arrogant jerks. I don't want to be part of those groups. I don't be a social. We can stand for these things. We can have our convictions, but we can do them in such a way that it's honorable. That we're, that we're not coming across as, as jerks. And so what are some reasons we might be slandered that we shouldn't be slandered for? Simply being sinful
1: jerks,
0: (laughs) right? Not being in a loving way to people, being too political. This is the whole idea of Christian nationalism, that, you know, we're going to charge it this way. Those are reasons that we should be slandered. But if we're living in an honorable way, if we're living in a loving way, that the the slander should not hold up. 1 Peter 2.20 he says, for what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Church, when we suffer, let's make sure we're actually suffering for Jesus and his mission, not for our own agenda. Let's not suffer for being jerks. I think that's what we see. A lot of times a story that the headlines that come out, the the, the hashtag on Twitter, Those are the stories we see a lot of times. You're like, oh, this, and it's like, ah, man, that's just this thing that blew up. But day in and day out, when we live our lives, let's do it in such a way that if we are suffering, if we really feel like we're a sojourner in this land, that we're doing it for Jesus and for his name's sake, not for our own name's sake. Standing against things like abortion, I believe, matters. But doing it the right way also matters. We're not going to go stand in front of Planned Parenthood and yell down a 17-year-old who's in the worst crisis of her life, not knowing what to do, and groups do that. And when I see that, and they're holding the sign saying, you're going to hell, and this, I'm like, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. I can't speak for Jesus, but I think Jesus would wrap his arms around her in that moment of crisis, in that moment of decision. That teenager's in the worst fearful moment of her life. And for us to come across that way is unloving and you're being a jerk and you're not representing Christ. There's a better way. Attacking people and making fun of those in opposition is not honorable. That's the flesh side, right? And I'll be honest, I'm guilty of it sometimes. Oh, these people, blah, 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 and I can't stand this. And, you know, it's like we're on the playground again and you're just making jokes about people's clothes and this, what we do with the bigger issues of life. That's not the way that we're called to do it. We're called to engage and act in an honorable way. In a way, in such a way, this is what I hate about our culture right now. I know hate a strong word, but there's so much polarization. You can't disagree with anyone. You can't hold your convictions any longer without you being canceled and being hated. And I, I'm fighting for another way. With my friends here, and once again, I know I'll say this a lot, but have a cup of coffee with me, okay? We might really disagree on this, but can we have a game night tomorrow night? Because I really like you. <laughs> I like you and love you as a person. But we're just going to really disagree on this. And I think it has to come back to that. We can't be just doing it with a megaphone. It's the, it's the relationships that we have to have. Do it in an honorable way. Do it in a way where they almost want to agree with you because they love you so much, but they just can't get there. Not yet. And so my question is, then ask yourself this morning, is how I'm approaching life as a sojourner honorable? Am I doing it in an honorable way? And third, our holiness will be evangelistic to a lost world. It says, and glorify God on the day of visitation. This simply means on the day of judgment. Jesus told his disciples they would be hated. But he didn't say, hey, you guys will be hated. I'm going up to heaven. (laughs) He said, you will be hated. Now let me lay hands on you. I'm going to commission you to be witnesses to all the world. Like, you got to be sitting there like, Jesus, you just told us the world's going to hate us. And now you're saying, go out to all the world and tell them about my love. Like, really? that's God, do we have to do this? He didn't pray. Jesus didn't say, "Guys, come here. Let me pray for you." I pray that you'll be culture warriors. I pray that you'll be. Uh, I pray that you'll be amazing debaters. No, he prayed, "Father, make them holy, as I am holy." He knew that it would be critical to our witness, and so we needed. We needed that light to overcome the darkness. The light that we talked about last week in Acts one it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the reality. It will always be easier to disengage from culture or to accommodate culture. It will always be harder and costlier to proclaim the wonderful excellencies, if you guys remember last week we talked about the wonderful excellencies of God to the culture around us, but that's why we're here. We're here to proclaim the wonderful excellencies of God to the people around us. And are we going to feel like sojourners in the process? Yes, we're going to feel like sojourners in the process. But that's my prayer for our church. That's my prayer for our world. And as we engage the world through the lens of scripture, that we'll see some that will turn to him because of, of, of the honorable way we do it and because of the evangelistic witness that we have in the moment. So church, my prayer is that you heard me clearly this morning, how it is that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, that we do it in such a way that Christ is honored, even if they don't recognize that honor and that some will, will be curious and interested in Him. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship this morning. God, as we look at a passage like this, we realize that it's easier said than done. It's much easier to embrace the passion of our flesh. It's much easier to give in to the passions of our flesh. It's much easier to do what the world around us is telling us to do. But God, you've called us out. You've offered us salvation. You tell us that we are born again to a new living creature. And so God, once we are in you, we recognize that empowered by your holy spirit we are to live a new life we're to live a different life a distinct life a, a, a holy life an honorable life and so god the reality is that's really hard but i pray for the people in this room i pray for those that aren't in the room for those that are online god that you would empower us through your spirit and through one another to live this out God, it is getting increasingly harder in our day and age, in our culture, specifically in our city, to live as a Christ follower. But God, may we be reminded that the world hated you and you told us it would hate us as well. But God, may we be hated, may we be persecuted, may we be suffering for the right reasons. Not because we're jerks on a platform and and doing it in an unloving way but God, because we're pointing them to the only way in you. It's in your name, by your power, through your blood, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, SojournPDX.org.